This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. Thanks for tuning in. The one-year anniversary of last year's violence in Charlottesville is winding down today. We have two reports, one looking back at the wounds from last August that are still healing, another ahead at how the city is trying to move forward. We also review two award-winning stories, profiles, by WMRA's Jesse Nadler from last summer's Women of Interest series. But first, leading up to this weekend, some residents in Charlottesville feared a repeat of last August's mayhem that resulted in the deaths of counter-protester Heather Heyer and two police officers. On Friday, we aired this preview by WMRA's Emily Richardson-Lorente. The one thing that's certain about what's going to happen this coming weekend is that no one is certain what's going to happen this weekend. We are preparing for worst-case scenarios. That's our job. That's Charlottesville Fire Chief Andrew Baxter speaking at a community briefing. Unlike last year, white supremacists have no permit to rally here this weekend. But Police Chief Rochelle Brackney says... Permit, no permit. We know somebody is coming to Charlottesville. And shame on us if we don't plan for whoever might show under whatever name they come up here. And so the city has planned, some say overplanned. The governor has declared a state of emergency, just in case. More than 700 out-of-town police officers have arrived and are staying in dorms at UVA. And this time, according to Virginia State Police Captain Craig Worsham, they don't intend to stand down if they see trouble. We're going to be active and assertive, so expect interactions with the police, because we're going to be out and about doing what we do Um, Not a lot of standing around. When your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's Lisa Woolfork, an associate professor at UVA and a Black Lives Matter organizer. Like many activists here, she's wary of a potentially overzealous police force. And so my concern is that peaceful um, demonstrators like myself, community members like myself who just want to be out in public, um, on August 11th and 12th, are going to be criminalized. Skateboards. Swords, knives, daggers. That's just part of a long list of items that will be prohibited on the downtown pedestrian mall this weekend. The mall will remain open to foot traffic, but police will be funneling everyone through two checkpoints. And violations of these restrictions may result in criminal penalties. Business owners on the downtown mall are concerned about access, but many still say they plan to open this weekend. We're hoping people will come out. We certainly don't want to encourage anyone to come out who doesn't feel safe or comfortable. Mike Um, Rohde owns Rapture, a restaurant and nightclub on the mall. He kept Rapture open last year and offered a safe space for protesters, journalists, and even police to set up and cool down. He has employees who want him to stay open again this year. Uh, I have some pretty strong people working here. You know, there are some people of color who in particular think, you know, um, this is my town. I grew up here. These people are coming from outside who wish me ill, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to stay home on their behalf. Nobody's coming in because they're thinking, oh, I'm going to make money this week. That's Joan Fenton. She owns a clothing store and a gift shop on the mall and is the chair of the Downtown Business Association. She says many of the businesses are thinking the same thing. That if we close, we're giving in to people that are trying to scare us. And if we're here and we're open, we're saying, no, we stand with Charlottesville, we stand with this community. UVA students will be standing in a different way. At 7 p.m. on Saturday evening, a group called UVA Students United will hold a rally near the rotunda. That's where the first violence of the weekend occurred last year, as a small contingent of students and staff were surrounded at the Jefferson statue. 
and beaten by a mob of white supremacists. I was there last year. I watched them as they marched down the lawn in their, with their tiki torches, the same lawn that I had just walked down for graduation a few months prior. Ibi Han is helping coordinate the rally. It's not about simply reacting to whoever shows up on campus. It's about us being there in force to be proactive. She says she's not thinking about what there is to fear. I'm thinking about how students and community will be together in that space and how we will replace the Nazis who were there. For those who don't necessarily want to protest or be on the pedestrian mall this weekend, there are other ways to participate. Worship services, a workshop on nonviolent action, a forum hosted by the NAACP, and this. Music director Jonathan Spivey has been leading rehearsals this week for a community concert called the Seville Singout. Knowing how people's emotional status was for the most part, all of us were, I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to come together through the beauty of music to sing, just sing. Originally, his group hoped to sign up 100 people to sing in the XR Park this weekend. Now they have nearly 400. The response has been overwhelming. We want to celebrate Charlottesville. Ellie Tucker is helping coordinate the event. She says she gets that some people just want to stay home, hunker down, but... We can't run and hide. We can't go underground or they win. Hate wins and we can't let hate win. Charlottesville is so much more than how the news depicts us. The Seville Singout is scheduled for 4 p.m. on Sunday at the Ixart Park. For WMRA News, I'm Emily Richardson-Lorente. And that's Seville Singout getting underway in just a few minutes. The indelible images of last August in Charlottesville include torches, Nazi regalia, and street brawls, but perhaps none is seared so deeply into memory as that of a gray Dodge Challenger hurtling toward a crowd of pedestrians. For some survivors, though, there's much more than memory. There are lingering physical as well as emotional wounds, but an ongoing interest in opposing bigotry. Hawes Spencer with our partner station WCVE has more. Last summer, 28-year-old Richmond resident Al Bowie was looking forward to a new job as a bagel baker and to taking a burlesque dance class. And uh, now I'm not able to dance at all. On August 12th, Al was in Charlottesville with a crowd of other counter-protesters and feeling celebratory because the white nationalist rally was ordered to disperse. They merged with another group and in a crowded street didn't know which way to go. And then people started chanting, go left. And that's when the march started going up 4th Street. Within moments, one person would be dead and another 35 injured. Al was standing on the sidewalk. And I saw out of my peripheral vision the car go past me. Al began running toward the stopped car. It didn't even occur to me that it could be intentional. I just thought it was a horrible accident. But it was James Alex Fields, Jr., a 20-year-old alleged Nazi sympathizer from Ohio. And I got about two, three feet away from the bumper, and he put it in reverse. Video shows Al catapulted into a parked pickup truck. That was the impact that broke my pelvis. I lost consciousness when I impacted. Beyond the shattered pelvis and eye socket, Al Bowie would eventually receive a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. But there were bright spots, such as meeting other victims, including a 38-year-old Charlottesvillian whose right leg was run over. Star is a superhero. She's 
out there in her wheelchair doing activism in the streets. Star Peterson of Charlottesville regularly attends city council meetings and protests. Her injuries aren't hampering her activism. It's slow. I don't like being slow. <laughs> I, I uh, miss just being able to hop up the stairs or move from point A to point e, B or carry things in my hands. Star has had multiple surgeries and now alternates between a wheelchair and crutches. I asked her what she sees when she looks at the deep, foot-long scars on her leg. I see a very long year. She says doctors haven't always been able to alleviate her pain. This is a friend, Emery Meyer. People have been suffering with this for a year now, and it doesn't just go away. It's not just a one-day thing. Another who aches for the survivors is Susan Bro. Some people will never fully recover from what they've experienced, and my heart goes out to them. Bro is the mother of Heather Heyer, who died on 4th Street. She channels her grief into something positive through the Heather Heyer Foundation, which provides scholarships to budding activists. I'm way behind in my work on that because, frankly, sometimes the grief incapacitates me. But I generally keep the grief at home. My husband can tell you there are days I just am not able to function. After the driver of the Challenger was indicted on federal hate crime charges, Bro spoke again about the survivors. I think a lot of them really need some justice and uh, some vindication for what they were doing and to acknowledge that a hate crime occurred um, acknowledges their pain, acknowledges what they've suffered. And one year later, she tries not to dwell on her own trauma. But I do miss my daughter a lot, but you move forward. You can't live in grief forever. And Bro is moving forward. She says there's a lot of racial justice work yet to be done. For Virginia Currents, I'm Hawes Spencer, WCVE News. Every year, the Virginia Association of Broadcasters recognizes outstanding work by radio and TV reporters and producers. We are proud to announce that for 2017, the VAB awarded first place to Jordy Yeager for his reporting from Charlottesville last summer that included his coverage of the KKK rally in July 2017 as well as coverage of the violent events of August 11th and 12th last year. Jordy won first place for outstanding news series for that reporting. Also, Jesse Nadler won first place for best human interest series for her two profiles. As part of our Women of Interest series, we want to recognize Jordy and Jesse. We are grateful for their work. Let's listen again to those profiles by Jesse. The subject of her first profile for that series was Misty Ward, owner and founder of Brookhaven Women's Health and Natural Birthing Center outside Harrisonburg. As one of the pioneering midwives in the Valley, she's a bit of a rebel, part of a growing movement to demedicalize childbirth. <laughs> what you're hearing right now is the sound of childbirth moments after delivery at Brookhaven Natural Birthing Center just outside Harrisonburg. The mom delivered her baby, her third child, in a water bath. <laughs> if the room sounds raucous, that's because it is. Ten people, not including Brookhaven staff, attended this birth. Grandmas, big brothers, children. The parents call their two older children over to the bathtub to introduce them to the newest member of the family. Come, come, say, what it, come say what it is. Daddy's okay, going to uncover and you and Roman is. are going to say what it is. It's a girl! It's a girl! 
A birth is by definition a lively event. And Brookhaven founder and owner, midwife Misty Ward, she actually caught this baby as it came out, likes to retain as much of that rough and tumble joy as possible. What are the, I guess the birth center philosophy is it's not a mini hospital, it's a maxi house. Births aren't supposed to be clinical around here. Moms can invite their entire extended families into the birthing suites with them if they want. They want to eat a ham sandwich? Go ahead. The fully stocked kitchen at the heart of Brookhaven is specifically for laboring moms and their families. So we have grandmas in here baking birthday cakes for the baby. Sometimes we have dads. I mean, we've had a guy make steak for all of our staff. That was a really good one. <laughs> the idea behind midwife-led maternity care is that women do better when they're able to deliver in a natural home-like setting at their own pace, often in a water bath. And research seems to back this up. Doctors in the United Kingdom recommend that healthy women with low-risk pregnancies are actually better off staying out of the hospital. It results in lower rates of interventions, from cesareans to episiotomies. This is totally anathema in the United States, where the vast majority of women have hospital births. 60% have an epidural. 32% are cesarean deliveries, more than double the World Health Organization's target of 10 to 15%. The whole experience is invasive and sped up, says Ward. Women are created to do this, and they can do it with the right support. And I just feel like the hospital's failing them in supporting them through a natural process. It's a lot of the things that happen to women in a hospital that creates the need for the epidural. Ward is part of a growing minority who think women are better off going au naturel. Around 9% of all births in the U.S. are led by midwives, up from about 3% in years past. When she first opened in 2010, she was delivering 40 babies a year. Now she's up to 100. More hospitals have linked up with midwives to meet the growing demand, but Brookhaven is still the only public freestanding natural birthing center in the area. She recently celebrated her 500th natural delivery. Witnessing a baby come out of a woman. I mean, honestly, the fact that it fit, the fact that it worked, the fact that she was alive when it was all over. Like, honestly, it just, it's amazing that our bodies can create another human being. And even now, 500 plus births into it and gone through the process myself, I'm still just in awe of like what women's bodies can do. We make people. Midwifery was the standard for delivering babies throughout history and one of the few occupations open to women. But in the United States, the practice was pushed underground and demonized as unsafe and backward as the medicalization of childbirth took over. By 1950, almost all U.S. babies were delivered by doctors, male doctors, in a hospital. Midwifery didn't go anywhere. It was just illegal. So it tended to draw women like Ward, who had a bit of a rebel spirit. It wasn't until 2006 that midwifery in Virginia became legal again. I kind of wanted to call the shots, and I didn't want to be employed by someone else. You know, I wanted to own my own business. I'm just really motivated in that way. And Because there were so few professional midwives in Virginia when she first started, she apprenticed for months at a time in places such as Senegal, the Dominican Republic, and Texas along the border. It required leaving her own children, she now has three, for long periods of time with her mother. The nine weeks that I was in Texas, I didn't see him, but I would write them a letter every single day. Ward's mother, long a home birth skeptic, became a champion of midwifery after witnessing Ward deliver her second child in her mom's own bathtub. She actually said, wow, Misty, like what you just got, every woman deserves. And she said, I feel like I was robbed of that experience because her own births were traumatic and horrible and scary. 
And she was terrified of me giving birth in her home. But then after, she just like became my number one supporter. But not everyone in the community was so enthusiastic. And home births are not recommended for high-risk pregnancies. When Ward went before the County Board of Supervisors in 2010 to apply for a zoning permit to open her business, she was reminded again that the medical establishment still had issues with her profession. Then the board said, is there anyone here who opposes this? And all of a sudden I heard, I do. I do, I do, I do. Four medical professionals associated with Rockingham Memorial Hospital got up to voice their objections. Ward, ever the fighter, reminded the board that she was licensed by the Virginia Board of Medicine to practice anywhere in the state. If they didn't give her the permit, she'd just open in another location. Then they were all like, oh, good point. We can't stop you from practicing. They realized it was a turf war and gave her the permit. And after a few bumps, she says she now has a great working relationship with the hospital, which leads to one of the biggest misconceptions about a natural birthing center. We're not going to handcuff you to the bed and say you have to do this without drugs here, bite this stick. You know, if women want to have an epidural, we'll take them to the hospital, you know. Ten percent of her laboring clients end up doing exactly that. And for the record, she's not anti-epidural at all. She just thinks they're overused. Jesse's second installment in that series was a profile of Joyce Herndon, a one-of-a-kind bookkeeper for the Stanton Union Stockyards. Joyce Herndon has been working full-time at the Stanton Union Stockyard since 1991. I'm the secretary, bookkeeper, accounts receivable, accounts payable, do most everything. On sale days, farmers from all over the Shenandoah Valley bring in their cattle for auction. It could be from 500 to 1,500 cows for sale at a time. She and the other ladies in the office stay until every last cow is paid for and processed. That can take until 7 p.m., 9 p.m., 1 a.m. The latest she stayed is 4 o'clock the following afternoon. So Joyce Herndon has some stamina. But there's something else you should know about her. I'm 82. Yeah, she's 82. How many 82-year-olds do you know who can pull the rare all-nighter? I've done it so long that I reckon I'm used to it. I think your body gets uh, immune or whatever. I couldn't do that. That's what my daughter says. <laughs> well, how, could, how do you do it? I don't know. They don't know how I do it. They said, how do you do it? I said, well, I don't know. We just do it. It helps that Herndon really likes her job. Getting up and going to work every day, even on those brutal sale days, is not a burden. I don't feel 82. I don't feel like my mind's 82. I still feel like my mind's 40. (laughs) I love working on books, bookkeeping, and talking on the telephone, talking with the people, and joking, and... (laughs) She also really likes her bosses, two brothers also in their 80s. They're the ones who persuaded her to stay on when she first considered retirement at age 65. They didn't want me to quit, and I really didn't want to quit. And I thought, well, maybe if I work till I'm 70, and I got to be 70, and I still liked it, and I was still active, and I felt like my mind was good. So I thought, well, I'll work till I'm 75. And it just kept going on like that. Now here I am, 82. In fact, the joke around the office is that Herndon may never retire, voluntarily. They said, well, they were going to build my coffin for me, and when I died, they'd carry me out (laughs) in the coffin. (laughs) 
They kid me about that all the time. She thinks that the work itself, bookkeeping, working with numbers all day, keeps her mind sharp and stimulated. Bookkeeping, she says, can sometimes be like a puzzle. When you can't find something in your bookkeeping, then you know it's right there. As I used to tell the other girls, it's in there. It's in there somewhere. All of a sudden, there it is. Wonderful. We're back to zero again. So she's got a great attitude. Her mind is sharp. She's surrounded by longtime friends and colleagues. All of this is key for maintaining vitality. But there are a few conditions that have made it possible for her to keep working into her ninth decade. Number one, it's a desk job. She's not on her feet all day. And number two, the stockyard doesn't do computers. Uh, I don't know how to use one, and I don't want to learn at 82. When people come in and ask us to look up something, sometimes we have it in five minutes. They'll say, well, that was fast. Herndon's husband passed away after 55 years of marriage in 2009. They had three children, five grandchildren, and now she has six great-grandchildren. I just feel like I'm so lucky to have found this job, and it was what I wanted, actually, because I grew up on a farm, and I loved the farm. And when I found this job, I thought, oh, I just love it, being around the farmers and hear the farm talk like I did growing up. And that's another reason why I don't want to quit. I just, I'm just so attached. (laughs) Work feels like home. How many people can say that? I have no regrets. And if I had it do over again, I believe I'd do it the same thing. I'd work as long as I could. (laughs) And that's no bull. For WMRA News, I'm Jesse Nadler. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Jenna Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg and Rockingham County. To support local news coverage here on WMRA, go to WMRA.org, mouse over news, and click on News and Information Fund. You'll find all of our stories archived at that website. In the meantime, get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast, the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and the morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday.